Ministry, according to Luke 14, Part 1, spoken by Pastor Kevin Swanson. Church, let me just add my word of welcome, and I want to add a special welcome that uh, today we're actually having our kids, four and five, the middle school and the high schoolers in the worship service with us. I know second service, there'll be a whole lot more, but I know some of you are here right now, so a special welcome to you guys. Great to have you with us. Um, if anything that I say in, the, in this sermon today is confusing to you or, you know, you're scratching your head like, what does that mean? Um, please talk to your parent or maybe your teacher or come find me after the service. I would love to chat with you. So I'm, I'm trying not to, you know, go way over your head. Um, and I, actually, I always try to do that if I possibly can. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into our message for this morning. Let's, let's just commit our time to God. Thank you, God, for allowing us to worship here. Thank you for those that have led us. Thank you for your presence that is here now. And so we commit this time to you. We commit your word to you. This is truth. This is where you reveal yourself to us, and this is where you reveal our needs to us and your provisions for those needs. Uh, so God, give us um, freedom from those distractions that might keep us from hearing from you, and uh, help us to receive everything you have for us in this service. We'll give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before I turn to the scripture this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to think for a moment, maybe you have about 10 seconds. Think of a very memorable meal that you have experienced. And when I say memorable, I mean memorable in a positive way, not a food fight or, you know, a meal that was horrible to eat. But think of a really good memory that you have of a meal. Okay, take five seconds. Get that in your head, okay? All right, now I want you to turn to the person next to you, and if you don't know them, introduce yourself to them. And I would like you to share with that person what that meal was. What was that meal? Why was it memorable to you? I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to talk to, to each other, so get with one other person. Why was it memorable to you? All right. Um, I, I'm concluding. I am. I'm. I'm concluding by the sound in the room that you guys enjoy your meals. That uh, that seems to be evident. So here's my survey. I want to do a little survey real quick here. How many of you heard from somebody that the memorable aspect of the meal was the food? It was the menu. It was what you ate. How many of you heard that from somebody else? Okay? Oh, only about a dozen of you, okay? How many of you heard from somebody that what made the, mem the meal memorable was who was at the table, who was around the table? How many of you heard that? Yeah, probably about twice as many on that one, okay? Both of them are legitimate, okay? Now, it's not right and wrong. If you heard from somebody that, that remembers the meal because of the menu, you're probably sitting next to a foodie, and that's okay. We need you guys. God bless you. If you heard from somebody who can't even remember what they ate, but they remember who was at the table, maybe it was one other person. Maybe it was across a, 
a candlelit table with one other person, maybe it was several close friends gathered around a table, and that's what you remember, then you're a more relational person. And they're both good, and we're going to see that in just a moment here. Uh, my meal was actually, it was a series of breakfasts that I had last year uh, when you guys sent a team of seven of us to uh, Turkey to teach English to Syrian refugee kids. And our days were crazy, but every morning we gathered for breakfast. And there was this little dark, cold kitchen in the guest house where we were staying. And every morning we would make our tea and sometimes some eggs and somebody would go to the bakery and bring some stuff in. And we'd squeeze around this table and we'd get caught up with each other. We'd make our plans for the day. We would listen to one another. We would pray with each other. And it wasn't the food that made it memorable. It was the people around the table and sort of the common bond we had, the common interest that we had in teaching the Syrian refugee children. Today, in the passages that we're going to look at, this is no lie, five meals. We're going to look at five separate meals in the Scripture today. Four of them are in the Gospel of Luke in a rather short passage. One of them is in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and that's where I want us to start today because this sort of tees us up. But what we're seeing here is that, that God knows that the time around the table, that the intimacy of a meal shared with other people is one of the most significant things that we experience in our human life here. And God knows that, and he sort of capitalizes on it to teach us things and to reveal things to us. And I hope that both of those will happen today. So we're going to actually start in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Isaiah's a prophet. His job is to hear from God and then communicate the message to the people. And sometimes the message looks forward. We, we think of prophetic messages, the future. That's the case here. Sometimes the message of the prophet is speaking to the day. God wants the prophet to tell the people something, remind them of something, warn them about something. This one is prophetic. So let me just read here Isaiah 25, starting verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And what God is revealing through the prophet is that there is this meal out there ahead of us. And, and God gives a bit of a description of it. And for you foodies, he reveals a part of the menu. It's the very best of food. It's a spread like no other. And for you relational people, God reveals that all of his people will be there. All of God's children will be present at this table. Death will be no more, the prophet says. Every tear will be wiped away. This is a time of rejoicing and celebration. We, we call this the messianic banquet. It's a, a, something will happen at the end of this age, at the end of time, at the inauguration of our eternal life with God. It's a time of great rejoicing and celebration. And so for the 
the children of God, the Israelites at this time, this banquet was always out in front of them. They, they longed for it. They looked forward to it. They understood it. And they couldn't wait for the day to come when that banquet would become a reality. Now, as we look in Luke this morning, uh, Luke chapter 14, I want you to keep that banquet in mind because it's going to show up in the passage today. And my message has two points to it today. The first point is priorities. The second point is the ultimate priority. So let's move through the passage today. I'm going to do something a little different that I don't generally do. I'm going to take it in chunks because there's four chunks in our passage today. And so we're starting in Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Let me read for you. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So in this passage here, the setting is this prominent Pharisee, a prominent religious leader, a rich guy, he invites a bunch of people into his house for a banquet, and Jesus is one of them. So this is the setting all throughout our passage today. Jesus is seated at the table as a guest in this guy's house with a whole bunch of other people. But you have to understand this, that in that day, those kind of events, those banquets, were quasi-public they weren't just private things. They were sort of public. People could actually come in who weren't invited and sort of hang around in the back. They might look through the window, stand in the doorway, lean up against the wall. They want to hear what's going on. They want to see what's going on. They're not necessarily being fed. They weren't invited, but they're there. And Luke tells us that there's this man here who is suffering, Luke says, from an abnormal swelling of his body. He has some kind of a physical condition that's causing him to suffer. He's, he's undoubtedly not one of the invited guests, but he's hanging around the outskirts. And Jesus, we are told, sees him. Jesus notices this guy. He's not just paying attention to the, the bigwigs around the table. He notices this guy. And we see some priorities of Jesus that come out in this little scene. The first one we see is compassion. Jesus has compassion. Compassion recognizes the person who is suffering. Jesus demonstrates compassion. Jesus identifies with the poor. He doesn't just identify with the rich guys that are invited to the table. No, he identifies with the people on the outskirts, the poor people who might never get invited to a meal like this. And Jesus prioritizes righteousness. He's going to do the right thing, even if it makes him unpopular with people, because Jesus is all about righteousness. So we see those three priorities, compassion, identification with the poor, and righteousness, all come out from Jesus. And what's the result of his priorities? Life transformation. The guy's healed. His suffering is over. His, his condition is gone. Jesus heals him and then sends him on his way. Go out, man. Live your life. Enjoy yourself. Life transformation flows out of those three priorities 
that Jesus demonstrates. But on the other side, we've got these Pharisees. We've got this rich guy who's throwing the banquet, and he's got all his cronies with him and stuff. They're in the room too, and we see their priorities. And one of their priorities was the law. The law. We've got to obey the letter of the law. Do what the law says. They loved the law so much, they added to it. They made the law even more significant than God had ever designed it to be. And then they expected everybody to follow those rules that they added. Law was a priority to them. Political correctness. We, we have to be seen as upstanding people in our communities. We have to be politically correct. And then their third priority was the status quo. They were all about stability. We've always done it this way. We're going to do it this way now. We're always going to do it this way going forward. They were very stuck in the status quo. And what is the result of their three priorities? Absolutely nothing changes. The man is still sick. He continues to suffer. It's the Sabbath day. We can't heal him on the Sabbath day. Let him stay in his suffering. Nothing changes changes with their priorities. And I think our takeaway from this first little section is simply this. Church, we need to examine our priorities. We need to call into question our priorities. These Pharisees have got huge blind spots. What blind spots do I have? What am I missing? What am I prioritizing that really has no eternal value? The scene continues at the table there, and we pick it up here in verse 7. When he noticed, this is Jesus, when he noticed that the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we've got this situation here where Jesus notices that these guys are positioning themselves. They're posturing themselves. They're trying to get closer to the host of the banquet because that's the seat of highest Honor. And so we can see the priorities of these guys who are kind of positioning themselves. They have a high priority of visibility. They want to be up front. They want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They have a priority of being honored. And so the closer they get to the host of the banquet, the more honor they perceive that they will have. They have a priority of status. And I don't know if you've thought much about status, but status can't exist unless everybody is kind of stratified, if there's different layers in society. I can't feel like I'm in a high place of status unless I can look down on somebody else. And these guys wanted the position of status. They, we're not like those guys around the outside of the room. We're at the table. We've got status. That was a high priority for them. And finally, privilege. They love to live into their privilege. They were seen by the community as being privileged people, and they wanted to live into it. Those were their priorities here. And Jesus advocates something completely different. He advocates some new priorities that he's challenging them with. He wants them to think differently, 
And based on their different thinking, he wants them to act differently. Actions flow out of what we think or what we believe. And he wants them to go against what is thought to be normal. This is what you do. Man, I'm, a, I'm an important guy in the community. Of course I'm going to try to sit closer to the host. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Re-examine that one. You're not as distinguished as you think you are. You're not as important as you think you are. And then Jesus introduces the word humility. And what he says is that humility is the secret weapon to success. And that is completely counterintuitive to these guys. They're all about pushing forward, climbing upward. And Jesus says, no, humility, that's your secret weapon if you want to be successful. Some of us that have been around Metro for a little bit longer um, remember this guy here. He was um, on staff with us for a while. That's, that's him on the far end there, uh, Mike Z. Mike Z. And Mike was um, a huge addition to our staff here at Metro. He was a therapist. He was one of the most godly men that I have ever met. And uh, when he started on staff at Metro, Mike Z had more life experience. He had more experience counseling. Uh, he had more years under his belt than anybody else on the staff. He's the guy who could have demanded the honor. He's the guy who could have looked for the, the head seat at the table. But for any of you that know Mike Z, that is completely the opposite of who he was. He had to be one of the most humble men that we have ever met. Even though he was a brilliant therapist, he came into the Metro staff as a learner. He wanted to learn from us. He met up with people one-on-one -on -one just to learn more about their culture and how they viewed things and stuff to help him be a better counselor and a better therapist. Uh, we believe that uh, we lost Mike too early. Mike passed away here uh, two-plus years ago, uh, and we miss him greatly. But the example he left to us of a humble man is one that still impacts many of us. And Jesus says humility is what we should prioritize, not the opposite. And the last thing that Jesus reminds the guys there at the table was this, that there is a host to this banquet. Somebody is in charge here. And this host knows exactly where everybody should be seated. In, in essence, the host has a, 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 a assigned seating list in his own head, and he will sort things out, Jesus said. And for some of you, it's going to be painful when he sorts it out because he's going to say, no, no, you don't belong in that seat. You, you, you go down there. You take a, a more lowly seat. And for some of the people, it's going to be very pleasant when the host sorts things out because he's going to say, you, thank you. You've humbled yourself, but no, I really want you up here closer to me. And that person will be honored by the host. And again, church, our takeaway is the same. We have to reexamine our priorities. We have to decide what's driving us do we have priorities that are more aligned with the Pharisees or more aligned with what Jesus is advocating in terms of thinking differently, in terms of humility? We need to call that into question. And then, and then the third one of these, these three little things that happen around the meal starts in verse 12. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors if you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And what Jesus is doing here, he's creating this list of a, 
of don'ts and do's. And he starts with the don'ts because he sees what's happening at the table. And he says to these guys, no, don't do this. Don't do the safe, comfortable thing. Don't do the expected thing. Don't just invite people that are just like you. That's not a sin for us to hang out with people like us. But if that's all we ever do, Jesus says we're missing the mark. He says, he says, don't do that. Let me just contextualize that for a moment for us as a church. For those of you that may be new to Metro, um, let me just tell you something. We don't plan to be in this building here forever. This facility is wonderful. It's amazing. We love it. But we believe that God has a home for us here in Inglewood, New Jersey. And it's not this rented space here. We believe that. And in terms of this particular teaching that Jesus says, I believe that his message to us today on the don't list would be, Metro, don't set your sights on building some big, fancy, beautiful church. Don't, don't put stained glass and pews in the sanctuary as nice as that would be. Don't, don't do that. That's not what I am calling you to do. Don't make it comfortable. Don't make it all about you and meeting your needs as a church. I think God will put that on the don't list because because I think he'd say to us, even as Jesus said to these guys, if that's what you do, you're making an investment with zero returns. And that's what he said to these guys. Invite people over just like you. They'll invite you over to their house and it's done. That's it. Nothing happens. I think Jesus would say to us, if you build a beautiful sanctuary here in Englewood, New Jersey to meet all your needs as a church, you're not going to be getting the return I want you to have. And then Jesus flips it, and he says, here's what I want you to do. Do this. Do the risky thing, he says to them. Invite people that aren't just like you. Invite the under-resourced. Invite the people with special needs. Invite the people with a different perspective. Invite the people who can't pay you back for what you offer to them. And I believe, again, if Jesus was speaking to us today, he would say to us, here's what I want you to do. I want you to locate your facility in, in a less desirable neighborhood here in Inglewood. Don't, don't pick the most prominent corner where everybody can see your tall steeple. No, I want you guys to be in the neighborhood. And I want your facility to serve the neighborhood. I want it to be something that can make a difference in the lives of the people who are under-resourced in this community. And I think he would add, don't worry about your worship space. It'll be fine. You'll have it. You'll have a worship space. You'll have classrooms for your kids. But don't make that your priority. Make your priority those who are most often overlooked. And then Jesus says, if you do that, you'll be blessed. Oh, oh, you won't get it back in this life because these people can't pay you back. But you will receive an eternal return on investment if you start thinking and acting that way. So once again, Jesus challenges our priorities, and he challenges us to examine them. Now, there's a big switch that takes place right here in the passage today, and we move into this ultimate priority. We move away from these teachings of priorities that Jesus speaks on, and and here's where the switch takes place. In verse 14, when Jesus says, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is now looking towards the end times, and he says, there will come a day when you will be paid back. And there's a guy in the crowd, when he hears Jesus say that, he responds by saying, by saying this, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast 
in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus says something about the end times, and this guy's head immediately goes to a meal, the meal we looked at in Isaiah. And this guy's going, yes, blessed is the people that get to, are the people who get to be at that banquet. Okay, And so now this ultimate priority that Jesus speaks of flows right out of that comment that this man makes. Jesus replied, verse 16, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who'd been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant to go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus here now is giving more definition to this great banquet at the end of the age. He's giving more details about it. And he actually talks about three separate groups of guests that are invited to this banquet. The, the first group of guests is, it's kind of obvious. These are the acceptable people. They're very much like the host uh, in, this, in this meal Jesus was sitting at today, his close friends, the Jewish leaders, the upper class people. And we find out here that they have already received an invitation to the banquet. Now, Jesus doesn't speak to that directly, but in that particular culture, if somebody was going to throw a big meal for a bunch of people in his community, one of the first things he would do several days before is send his servant out to go deliver the invitations to each home where people were going to be invited. But then the servant needed to hear back, are you coming or not? And the reason was simply this. In those days, there was no food preservation. Whatever is cooked on that day has to be eaten that day. So the host wanted a pretty accurate head count so that he could prepare an appropriate amount of food and that nothing would be wasted. So Jesus picks up the story when on the day of the banquet, the servant goes back to all these houses and essentially rings the dinner bell. It's like, okay, it's time to come. The food's ready. You can probably smell it. Come on over. Come up to the table. And shockingly, Jesus says these people start refusing to come. They, they've already said yes. They said, yeah, count us in, five of us in our family. And now they're backing out of it. And everybody who hears Jesus tell this parable that day, he knows immediately that the excuses that they give are paper thin. They're, they're ludicrous. They're lying to this guy as they give their excuses. Why do I say that? Well, the first guy is a landowner, okay? He's wealthy. He's a landowner. And he says, I just bought some more land, and, and now I need to go check it out. I mean, that's laughable. People would start laughing because everybody in that day knew if anybody was going to buy a piece of property, he would never buy it without carefully doing all his due diligence, walking it, studying the history. Is there water? How many crops does it produce? And it would be foolish for this man to not have checked it out before he bought it. So the message that he is sending to the host is this. My land is more important. It's a higher priority to me than my relationship to you. I'm not coming. 
This is an offense to the host, to the guy who is throwing this big meal. The second guy is no better. We find out he's like a commercial farmer. We know that because he says he bought five yokes, five pairs of oxen. Okay, he's a rich guy. He's got a big farm. But then he says, I have to go try them out. And again, the people would be laughing at this point because only a fool would buy a pair of oxen without already trying them out because they knew if the two oxen didn't pull well together, they would be worthless. They'd go around in circles and they would never plow his field. And this guy is saying, my animals are more important than my relationship to you. Higher priority on my animals than on my relationship to you. Again, it's foolish. It's, it's ludicrous. And the last guy, he says, oh, I can't come. I got married. Well, in that day, number one, nobody would plan their wedding on the same day as a big feast that they had committed to come to. So this guy got married sometime before that. And he's saying to this, this master, this, this, this host, he's saying, a couple hours with my wife is more important than my relationship to you, so I'm not coming. So all of these guys offended the master as they refused to come to this banquet. Their message, the banquet's optional to us. We're okay. We got food at our house. We're fine. We don't need to come. Whatever you have to offer, we don't really perceive that we need it. So when the servant brings this news back to his master, he's understandably angry, but immediately he creates guest list number two. And we see this in verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The master of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, if the first set of invitations went out to the acceptable people, the second invitations go out to the less acceptable people. Oh, they're still from town, they're the, they're the blue-collar people. They're not the ones that normally get invited to events like this. Um, they're kind of looked down on by the, by the upper class, but they're, they're still neighbors. They're still Jewish people who live in that community. Second-class citizens, I guess we could call them. But it's interesting that these are the very people who Jesus spent his time with. Jesus always sought out people like that, and the Pharisees got mad at him, and they said things to Jesus like, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why do you hang out with prostitutes? Jesus came for those people. And here Jesus lists out the poor, the blind, the handicapped. They all receive the invitation. None of them have an excuse. They all respond to the invitation and they show up at the banquet. And they come up to the table. It's like, this is awesome. This smells so good. Can't wait for the food to be served. But the servant then goes back to his master and he says, I did exactly what you said. They're here. They've come. They're ready. They're excited. But there's still more room at the table. And here the host does something very interesting. He tells his servant, I want you to leave town. I want you to go outside of town and invite people. Verse 23, the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Jesus crosses a line here. Jesus crosses a line. Because what he's doing in the parable, this guy goes out beyond the known of this town, this Jewish community, out into the public highways and roads where you don't know who's on the road. You don't know if they're Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, Egyptian. You don't know. And the master says, my house is going to be open for all people. 
you go out there to where those people, those people who aren't like us, where they are, and you invite them to come. But notice in the verse, Jesus uses the word compel. He says, go out and compel them to come. Why does Jesus say that? Is he, is he expecting this servant to like grab them by the neck and drag them into the banquet? You will come to this. No, no, that's not it at all. That's not it. Jesus understands that these people will be reluctant. Number one, they're not going to think the invitation was for them. Oh, I'm sorry. You must be mistaken. You don't know who I am. I don't belong at this banquet. And the master says to his servant, you take the time. You convince them. You build the relationship with them to where they will trust you. You put your hand on their shoulder and say, no, seriously. My master told me he wants you at the table. You and your buddies. No joke. Come on, I'll walk with you. Let's go to the banquet together. There's room for you, and my master wants you there. And Jesus, when he goes there, he goes outside their little Jewish culture He's now making those Jewish religious leaders that are listening to him pretty upset because Jesus is making this banquet way bigger than they ever imagined it to be. The unacceptable people are now invited as well. I want to point out one other thing to you in verse 23, and it is simply this, that the parable has no ending. Have you ever noticed that? With the first two groups, the people either respond or they don't respond. They don't come. They do come. The tables are filling up. With this third group, it just falls off a cliff. We're never told what happens. The master sends them out with his instructions, but we're never told what happens. It's kind of weird, isn't it? The answer, the reason for that is, church, you and I are living in that age right now. We are living in this part of the parable. Where, where Jesus has sent us out to invite all people to his banquet. You see, in the parable, it's a servant that's, set out, that's sent out, but that servant represents the church. It represents the body of Christ, us, with Christ as our head. Our mandate is to go and compel people to come to this banquet to convince them that they belong there. You've probably had circumstances in your own life where you're talking with somebody, and, oh, yeah, I attend Metro Community Church. Oh, I'm not a church person. They count themselves out. No, the invitation's not for me. You, you, don't know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what kind of person I am. And Jesus is saying, no, compel them. Convince them. Repeat the offer. Don't take no for an answer. I want these people at my table. And the good news, church, is people are accepting this invitation. The church is growing. There's more and more people coming to this banquet, receiving the invitation that God has extended. So how do we conclude this message today? How do we, how do we wrap this up and bring it to an end? Well, I'd like to go back to where we started with some of the priorities that Jesus modeled for us. These, these are the ones that we see Jesus modeling. Compassion. He speaks about it. He models it in his own life, identifying with the poor, righteousness, humility, and then investing with eternity in mind. So Jesus has left us here this great list, 
These are important priorities that we should take very, very seriously. But then he shifts over to this great banquet situation, which is this this picture of an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ, a a relationship of intimacy and acceptance. You saw just a flicker of it when you talked to each other about a meal that was memorable to you. This is going to be a hundred times more memorable than that meal, but we've had a taste of it. And every time at the first of the month when we gather around the table here to celebrate communion, we're having a little taste of the banquet that Jesus is providing for us and preparing for us. But church, here's our temptation, and here's what I want you to be warned of. We can look at this list here and say, well, I don't quite measure up, so I better work on that. And if I can get those things right, then maybe... Jesus will extend an invitation to me. And if Jesus was standing here today, I think he would say in a very loud voice, no, 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 wrong. That's backwards thinking. This isn't about making ourselves acceptable to God because we saw that he extended the invitation to the acceptable people, the unacceptable people, and everybody in between. God extends this invitation to all exactly how we are. Even if we can't even measure up to one of those priorities, his invitation is, come, come, come. I want you in a relationship with me. So then where do these priorities fit in? Are these just throwaway things? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. These priorities fit in for those of us who have accepted the invitation. Those of us who have said yes to the offer that Jesus made to us, those of us that are now in a relationship with God because of extending the invitation, Jesus says now, this is how I want you to live. This isn't to earn your way to an invitation. No, you've had the invitation, and if you've accepted the invitation, then he says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to help you live this way. You're not perfect. You never will be, but let's go on this path of growth together. Let's keep these priorities ahead of us. As we go through our life, the ultimate priority is being at the banquet. When we accepted that invitation, these priorities should be what we are reflecting in our own lives, even as Jesus was reflecting them in his life. We don't do this to gain an invitation, church. We've already had an invitation. These flow out of a relationship. Many of you know that, uh, that my family and I lived in Venezuela for uh, 10 years, uh, quite a while ago. We served as missionaries there. And when we moved to this little tiny town that we lived in, we were right on the border of Colombia, separated by a river. And back in the day, Venezuela, believe it or not, was the wealthiest, most stable democracy in all of South America. If you're watching the news, you know that script has been flipped. And back in the day, people from Colombia, and there, was, there were drug wars going on and all kinds of revolution and stuff, so people would like come across the river from Colombia to Venezuela to find jobs and to live in a little bit more safety. Now the reverse is happening there. And so there was this Colombian family that moved into our town. Uh, we got to know them just a little bit. Delightful family, a husband and wife, and I think they had three kids at the time. And um, we just said, hey, let's just have them over for a meal sometime. And you know, yeah, sounded like a good idea, and we, we picked a date, and so I connected with, with either the husband or wife, I don't remember, and I said, hey, we'd like to have you over for a dinner on Friday night. You know, you and the kids, and your kids can play with our kids, and it'd be great. 
um, come about 6 o'clock. It's like, oh, okay, thank you very much. And so Linda cooked a nice meal, and, and we had a table that was actually large enough for all of us. She put a tablecloth on it. She put these dishes out in the cups. It was really nice. And 6 o'clock came, but they didn't. And in Latin America, if you've ever lived there, you realize that people don't come right at the invited time. That really wouldn't be polite. So, you know, they come 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes later. That's a polite thing. No problem. So, you know, they'll get here about 6.30. 6.30 came and went. They still weren't there. 7 o'clock weren't there. 7.30. It's getting close to our kids' bedtime, and they're not there yet. And we finally realized they're not coming. This is way beyond anything polite. And we were kind of disappointed, and we were sort of upset. We'd extended the invitation. They had said yes to it, and it's like, why didn't they come? Why did they say they were coming and then not come? And we learned a few things later as our cultural awareness grew. One of the things we learned was that in that culture, it's more important to please the person in the moment than it is to tell the truth. And so to be invited by us, the most important thing was like to save face and make us happy. Oh, yes, thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, yes, it'll be lovely, even though they had no intention of ever coming. So that was something we learned. The other thing we learned, and this was more personal with them, was they did not feel in any way worthy to come to our house. We didn't know it at the time. We learned later that they were living in, literally in a little tin shack that was just big enough maybe for the six of them to lay down and sleep in. And they were just living hand-to-mouth in really abject poverty. And they, our house, which wasn't much at all, they thought was like a palace, and there's no way they deserved to come. They, oh, we're just being polite. We didn't really want them to come. And so we learned that as well. And we learned that we needed to do a little more relationship building and kind of compel them to come. But to me, it was this picture of people who feel like Oh, this invitation is really not for us. I'm really not worthy to accept this invitation. Guys, we are surrounded by people who believe that they're not the kind of people that God wants to be in relationship with. We're the servant. We're the ones that are sent out to bring this news, this good news, that there is a banquet, and being at it is the ultimate priority. Would you pray with me?